Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the logistics of building a brand with my dear friend, Chip Humitz. Welcome, Chip. Thanks, Joe. Good to be here. Thank you so much. So I grew up with Chip. We've uh, known each other since we were 10, which is like 20 plus years ago. And uh, maybe a very big plus, but 20 plus years ago is what we'll go with. And I spent a lot of Chip's misspent youth with him, so I know all the bad stories and probably was part of many of them, but still close friends. And now we talk more about branding and logistics than the stuff we used to talk about. Anyway, Chip, please introduce yourself and your company. Uh, Chip Humans, and I work for an advertising branding company called Ludwig Plus, a suburb of Detroit, Michigan. But yeah, that's what I do. And what do you do there? Oh, that probably that's important, right? So I'm the uh, director of marketing and brand strategy. So I do some strategy work and then actually uh, try to apply that strategy to our clients' marketing needs. Excellent, excellent. And guys, Chip and I have talked about, he's always helped me try to understand that creative side, the branding, market research, that stuff he's always been very good at, but he's done his whole career. And forever, it was like, well, that was separate from all the businesses (laughs) I was in. And only recently, Chip and I have started to kind of be in the same space because logistics and transportation, warehousing, e-commerce, these companies all want branding now and they want to have a better go-to-market strategy. So Chip is the guy, which before we go any further, Chip, tell us a little bit where you grew up, where you went to school and a little bit about your career prior to joining Ludwig Plus. Yeah, sure. I grew up in Dearborn, spending or misspending my youth with Joe. Then uh, when I got tired of doing that, uh, I went off to Michigan State University and got a master's degree there and uh, then ended up go white and then from there I ended up in marketing pretty much for my whole career and initially on the client side at uh, Domino's Pizza and Heinz USA doing the ketchup and baby food thing and then probably the last 25 years or so at different uh, advertising agencies and branding firms you know doing brand building brand development and advertising for just a ton of clients big small for-profit not-for-profit grassroots stuff and you know, giant corporation stuff. And now getting dragged into the logistics and transportation space more yes. more and more. Who knew? I'd been for the last decade or so I've been wondering when I would get the chance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Chip, <laughs> before we get into how do we go about building a brand, just from a brand I think we all have an idea what we think a brand is, but from a brand strategist perspective, what is a brand? Yeah, it's, it's a good question because I think, you know, I don't think a lot of people really know it's what it isn't is a logo. I think a lot of times companies, you know, get into right. the branding efforts and they, they want a new logo or a new tagline or something like that. Now, typically logos and taglines and stuff like that have some relationship to branding, but really what branding should do is create a create value for you in the minds of consumers or your audiences or you know, stakeholders. Uh, it's probably worth noting too, and we'll probably get to it later, that, you know, Internal branding is probably at least as important as external branding. You know, the image you put out there to the world is going to help you sell things to your clients and customers. But it's important that that brand reflects inward too. The, the people, you know, the people that make up your company, the processes that you have, 
should all drive toward representing that brand because I think it was um, Michael Eisner who was at the time, I think the CEO of Disney said something like a brand is, you know, made or destroyed based on a thousand small gestures. So the little things really matter in branding, both what you put out there and the way that people inside understand your brand. Yep. Chip, you said something to me many years ago when I was, I had some little consulting company I was trying to get off the ground. And I remember calling Chip and he was giving me advice and he kept saying, well, what is the business about? What is, you know, who are you serving and what makes you special and all this? And he said, you can't bolt a brand on after the fact. Yeah. It is who you are. All we're doing is kind of making it bigger and making it clear that we specialize in this area and we feel like, you know, where we're different and better and special is here. And when you said that, it always stuck in my mind because I thought, oh, oh, well, don't you just have this whatever crazy company you have and then you're just kind of almost like whitewashing it. And maybe, maybe that's yeah. the old way of doing it. Like just put another coat of paint on it. It'll be okay. Yeah. And I think that's a lot. The thinking in the past was, no one's going to know that our supply chain's not ethical. No one's going to know that we mistreat employees. No one's going to know we have shoddy business practices because we've got this great brand. Doesn't work yeah. that way. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. I think a lot of companies do that. They come up with what they think will sell in a category, and then they just decide to be that without any regard for whether or not they can deliver it. And frankly, really without trying to understand if it's really what's needed in the category. And so you end up with brands that like, I think it's good to say, like it's whitewashing and, and brand ends up being pretty hollow. And you can see that. And if you look at analytics, you know, if you got a you know great ad campaign or a great tagline or whatever, when you get a lot of trial, but no repeat, it probably suggests that your delivery isn't living up to the promise. Right. My younger daughter, Kelly, went to, got her degree in sustainable business. And she said there's a term they use a lot in the sustainable business is greenwashing. And I think mm -hmm. it's very popular these days where companies, they aren't necessarily into any sort of environmental um, activities. They're not trying to actively build a sustainable company, but they, they kind of have these gestures like, oh, we planted, look at, we planted some trees out in front of our building and, and we've had it in our mission statement. We're green. Well, <laughs> as soon as you scratch below the surface, everyone goes, ah, that's who you really are. <laughs> You know, right. That, so that's greenwashing, very similar to the whitewashing we just discussed. It doesn't work. Yeah. And I think you bring up, you know, vision statements, mission statements. It's always fun to read those. Oh, I don't know about fun, but interesting because a lot of companies, you can spot it right away. These mission statements that just sound like it was us, you know, like spin the wheel of jargon. Right. They all sound the same and they don't really mean right. anything. They, right. And they never resonate. You just kind of read it. You go, no. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I, but when you I, run into I, a good I've one, it really, kind of it really resonates. Those. Yeah, they're all boring. They all kind of say the same thing. None of them yeah. say, hey, you know, we're in it for a quick buck. I hope to sell the company within five years. <laughs> right. That would be refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about brand. Now talk a little bit about what is brand positioning. Yeah, I'm one of those guys that believes in brand positioning in a big way. Because I think it's what brands ultimately are. I, mean, I think I mentioned what a brand is, is, is some kind of an image or uh, thought or idea that lives in the minds of you know, your audiences. And you know, what that idea is really needs to be represent a position in a marketplace you know, relative to you know, what you do as a company, what you make, the way you operate, but also what your audiences need or want. And then the third leg of that stool is the competitive environment and the broad environment that you work in. So you've got your brand, 
your audiences and competitive environment. And when you triangulate those things, you kind of get to, you know, do some discovery work, figure out, you know, what's going on in each of those spaces. And hopefully what you end up with is kind of this, you know, metaphorical position in the marketplace, what you should be delivering and, you know, value propositions come from those sorts of exercises. So to me, positioning is the, really sort of the spade work of developing a brand. So when we talk about price or experience or access or product services, mm-hmm. things I wrote down from our discussion when we were prepping, how do those relate to the position? Uh, those are kind of broad positioning areas. There was a study done a bunch of years ago trying to figure out you know, how industry uh, category leaders got to be leaders. I think their intent, uh, it was a, you know, like an, uh, an audit of a a couple thousand companies, I think. The idea was to find kind of the magic recipe for you know leadership. And what they found, I think to their surprise, were there were basically four positionings, these, you know, or five, I'm sorry, price, experience, access, product, and service. And you could get brands in the same category being very successful, which is what surprised them. What the difference was is they were excellent in one of these five positioning areas, and then very good at a second one and on par on everything else. So what right. sets up is these kind of, you know, again, territories where brands live and have to excel. And you kind of got to yep. own that space. Yep. Chip, and I, when we were talking offline the other day about this, is I mentioned, and this goes years ago, so they probably changed five times since then, but because there's been a change of ownership. But when I was working at Chrysler back, oh, I want to say 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they said, we're never going to be in the same level manufacturing-wise in the coming years with Toyota. Toyota is so, so, so effective, so efficient in their manufacturing mm-hmm. operations. But what we can be is the company that has better brands and a company that really works on styling. So they really went yeah. all out developing great designs. And I think you saw that in the market. They always mm-hmm. had Jeep. They had the town and country minivan where they really went out of their way to focus on design. That didn't mean they had to give up on manufacturing. You still have to be really good at it or you're not going to be in business. But it's deciding where you want to be. And I think applying this a little bit to transportation logistics, you know, if we're talking about like maybe a freight brokerage or a 3PL, you might say we focus on, you know, our experience and our number of people with it. Maybe we have tons of transportation specialists and analysts and freight brokers. But if I don't have technology, (laughs) <laughs> I lose, right? So yeah. I have to have all of it, but it just depends where I'm going to focus my energies. What's my story going to be? And hopefully what stands out to the customer. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you mentioned stories. I think sometimes people get caught up in when you ask like, what a brand is. I said, you know, it's not a logo. It's also not just a story. Your story has to have, an, you know, kind of a compelling beginning and kind of, and, and people need to envision what the end of the story is. Like, where's this brand going? And it, got to be unique or better than the competition. So not, it's good, it has to go beyond just a story, but have, you know, as you mentioned with Chrysler, you know, deciding that they're, you know, they're going to make their story about styling, which, you know, makes you compete in a slightly different space than Toyota, who's about you know, precision manufacturing or whatever it is. And obviously that means you're going to probably be not, not as appealing to the folks who are just looking for, for whatever reason, you know, well-manufactured cars or whatever Toyota was selling, right. but are more interested in styling. And that, I think that's where branding has really become important these days is with so many competitors in every category, 
you've got to be different and you have to be willing to say we're not going to be everything to everybody because you know as they say then you're nothing to no one so that takes some bravery and honesty to say look we're not going to compete well in this positioning in this territory we're better suited over here and then we're going to try and own the hell out of that space yeah chip that comes up i'd say every time i have somebody in marketing or sales discussion at some point it comes to what are we going to specialize in we can't be good at everything we can't be the best at everything where are we going to focus? And what's happening in this space is big changes. So we're all of a sudden delivering to homes where we never did that before. I think yeah. now if you look, e-commerce is about 15%, 14% of the total retail spend. And you're looking and go, that's brand new. Now, we've all, there's a ton of companies that say we've been doing this for 50 years or 100 years, but they might have never delivered to a home. But delivering to homes mm-hmm. is very different. And the same with, you know, the transportation back and forth over the border to Mexico. It's always been there, but now it's really ramped up. Stuff we get from overseas is really ramped up. And now people are saying, I don't want a 3PL just to come in and have relationships with carriers. I want them to be tech experts. That's brand new. (laughs) 10 years ago, I don't think most people in this space considered themselves really tech experts. That's where we're at now. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure part of it is you know, one, just the rise of technology, but just the automotive, the transportation industry in general is starting to, you know, leverage technology. I spent some time working on in commercial fleet business and technology has become, you know, very important there for efficiency, tracking, yep. yeah, yeah, all that stuff. So, yeah, and it's, I think it, you know, it's not just about technology and it's, you know, you've got to figure out, it's so important to understand what the benefit of the technology is to the audience, because that's, you know, where you create value. Just having technology isn't enough. It's got to be something that's relevant to your audience. So it's important to spend time figuring that out. Chip, one of the challenges, uh, the big chunk of our, uh, one of the biggest chunks of transportation, logistics, warehousing is the -the over-the-road transportation. And, you know, it's difficult to kind of, we'll get more into the customer's head in a minute here. I know you're going to talk about that, but it's very difficult to kind of get their attention get inside their head and understand what they really want and why they're really buying. And I suspect they don't even know why they're really buying. We know there's relationships involved. We know they're buying a little bit on price. But when you talk to the average transportation logistics guy for many years, he'd say, it's a relationship. They value the relationship we have. But then they would also say, price has to be right. Service has to be good. And now more and more companies are saying, I have to have the right technology. So I think we'll get into that in a minute. But I don't think people always understand why they buy. I think we make a lot of irrational decisions at work and at home when it comes to purchasing. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of times companies believe that they know why people buy because they've, you know, spent my life in this industry, you know, I should know everything. (laughs) And so they don't even ask a customer. And then, I mean, you mentioned it too. I think customers sometimes have a hard time articulating what they need. I mean, sometimes they do something because it's the way we've always done it or, they believe that a company that you know has this attribute is what they need. They never really stop and think about you know what is it we're really getting out of that. You know, as we mentioned, those kind of positioning territories. What does access mean? It could mean having lots of distribution points. It could also mean you know ways to access information. You have to drill down and figure out what creates value for your audiences. You know what keeps them up at night. What in front? You know what would help their business perform better. Yep, I've been listening to a book on audio book. That's uh, called the stories that stick. I love that. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is the authors telling stories that stick, obviously. But 
she's very interested in what do people think about before they fall asleep <laughs> right. when it comes to yeah. work. Obviously, they're thinking about family and other issues like that. But she said, what's, you know, there's the old thing, what's keeping you up at night? She said, but I want to know the last thing they're thinking about work-wise before they go to bed. And because yeah, that's, and that probably, would, would be a nice part to focus on, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's probably a real, I mean, I've not done that research ever. It sounds really interesting, but my guess is there's probably a, a relationship between, you know, what that thought is and, you know, where they believe the value is or the, or the threat to their value. Right, right. So, Chip, we talked the other day when we were prepping for this, and, you know, there has not always been a lot of branding in the transportation, logistics, warehousing space even in the technology that we use. But now we're starting to see it. But, you know, I could also make the argument, why do I even bother? If I was, let's just say, running a little third-party logistics company or freight brokerage, why spend money on a brand strategist and a great company like the one you guys are at? Why not just hire another sales guy? That'll help me grow my sales just as much as spending on you. Yeah, I think, you know, that's fair. That you know, you know, What's the value of this, I guess, is my point. Yeah, well, every year there's a study that's done that measures the value of different brands. Like, and it's an interesting study because the, and I'm not sure of all the um, the methodology, but essentially what they set out to do is understand what is the value of the brand itself. As an example, Coca-Cola always, you know, does very right. well here. The, the thinking would be if all, you know, if all the bottling plants and the, you know, whatever the patent on the recipe and all the, you know, resources, you know, suddenly just vanish. Distribution network. Yeah. yeah. Everything, everything gone. The only thing left is the brand. What would that be worth? And companies like Coca-Cola and Apple and Nike, and there's, there's plenty of, you know, it's like, it's tens of billions of dollars. It's right. worth a lot. So, you know, why, so getting a brand right is really important. And yeah, you could, you know, you could, do it yourself. I would think that Phil Knight and Steve Jobs, you know, had a vision when they started those companies and, and they got it right. But, you know, because there's so much value on the line with getting a brand right, I would suggest that you at least consider seeking the help of experts who've done it before, have worked in other categories and know what the, you know, the pitfalls are. Often, you know, you see right. clients who want to save the money doing this themselves they can't separate themselves from the day to day. And there's all, you know, this slaying the sacred cows. And it, it's hard to do that. It's easier for someone to come in and tell you maybe that your baby's ugly. You're never going to admit that yourself. But, you know, again, when a brand has to be the sales guy, when the sales guy isn't there, it's worth getting it right and really being honest about how you're positioned and how well you're delivering on the positioning. You know, just to be honest, every company already has a positioning and hopefully it does in the customer's head, but is it the one you want? Customers put companies in buckets. That's They do the positioning on their own. Companies should be interested in making sure that that perception matches you know, not only where they want to be in the marketplace, but where they can create value. You said something earlier, maybe you said it when we were offline, but I think you said something like, you know, the company itself created this brand and ideally, it's the brand you want. So, like when Nike created this brand, and Apple, and you know Chrysler, and all these companies created their brand. All you're trying to do as a brand strategist is articulate that to the market, communicate that to the market, kind of refine it a little bit. You can't go back in and say, "Oh yeah, Nike actually was this really backward company, and they did this, this, and this, and you know, and somehow their shoes are poor quality." No, that none of that was true. All you were doing was 
straightening it out and saying, here's how we're going to communicate this better if you were to be a strategist over there, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think you have to be, sometimes people get sort of missed or starry-eyed about, you know, brands like Nike and Apple and they say, hey, we want to be the Apple of you know, the logistics industry. And it's like, it's just, it's just not a fair thing to say because that's not understanding where value is created in a particular category. So, you know, it's okay to be not sexy, as it were, right. if that not sexiness is really meaningful to your audience. It's perfectly, I mean... It's, it's also be authentic first. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I think we talked a little bit about this offline. Let me make this clear. <laughs> if I build a brand that is, you know, I do it right, and now I'm, you know, I've worked with a strategist, someone like you, at the end of this, there's an ROI I take it on the spend I would have on building a brand? Yeah, I think that's the, I mean, the ultimate measure of, you know, brand success. I mean, if you had like everything has to have measurement and analytics and KPIs these days, you know, a brand, the bar that a brand is trying to clear is ROI, margin, profit. As I said before, you know, this interbrand study that measures the value of brands, that's exactly what they're doing. If you have a powerful brand, you can command more in price for your product than a commodity brand or a like competitive brand. And that means yep. margin, which means ROI, which means profit. So the brand yep. is doing its job. You should see it in the margin and the profit. Yep. And Chip, it's funny, the power of brand sometimes is, I remember reading, I think it's that book, Thinking Fast and Slow, Slow and Fast, mm -hmm. whatever it was, Kahneman's book, that talks about how we think, system one and system two thinking. And system one was kind of this gut feel, this kind of immediate, you know, where you're not no deep thinking. System two is yeah. deeper thinking. And then I applied that just kind of when I go shopping, I go over to the grocery store and I grab certain products because of the brand. Other times, there's no brand loyalty at all. I look and go, hey, this is the generic brand and that's good enough for me. So, you know, beans are beans. Other times I'm like, oh, no, I need Tide. I use Tide or I use these paper plates, whatever. And it's interesting because there's if someone was to go back and say, Joe, why did you make these decisions? You would hear a whole bunch of nonsense, even more than usual. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's brands, are, the brand situation in a given category is different from the next category, especially when you start talking about, you know, commoditized products. It, I mean, obviously, in a commodity category, it's very hard to we do can be, We can get commoditized here. <laughs> Well, right. And that, that's the danger, right? Is if, you, if you've got a category or a company that's not separating itself from the herd, you run the risk of being a commodity, even in a category where branding is strong. And there's lots of that for every category where you see these big aspirational brands that are driving, you know, high margin. There are some brands, you know, that just are out for getting their fair share based on being the lowest price. And right. investors don't like that kind of shit. Nope. Nope. So, You've given us a good background here. So we talked a little bit about brand. We talked a little bit about brand positioning. Now, the topic today is the logistics of building a brand. So you had given me some steps here. Why don't you take us through, I think it's four or five steps. Why don't you take us through, if you were to show up at some transportation logistics company and say, what's the first step? What would be the first thing you would do when you're helping them build that brand? Yeah, it goes back to what I said earlier is that the process of understanding, you know, in my mind, there's kind of three key areas, as I mentioned before, the audiences, your brand, and then the environment or the competitive situation. And what we typically do is, you know, there's lots of ways to get there, but they're essentially 
you know, explorations and deep dives into each of these areas. You know, who are the customers? Who's the, the audiences? Who are the audiences, you know, for the product now or in the category? What does the competitive situation look like? Are there, you know, are they, who's the leader? Who's, you know, coming fast? What are they doing to separate themselves? How are they positioning themselves? And then the brand component, it's probably the most interesting is trying to understand the brand itself, the company, you know, what makes it, your company special? What, what are the strengths and weaknesses? You know, what is, what was the vision? And we typically do this part of the, um, the process through interviews with key stakeholders in the company. And it's interesting when you do that because, you know, what you would think is uh, they gather together the leadership team and say, we'll be make yourself, make ourselves available to you. And that's fine. But I think it's also interesting to talk to, you know, the person that's been at the company the longest and conversely, the person who's been at, who's just started at the company. And if there's someone that, People consider the company historian. Go talk to that person. But you can just kind of dig around in the attic of the company, as it were, to try to figure out, you know, what makes the company tick? What were the kind of the big days in the company's history? What you know, values versus where we're at? Yeah. And, you know, and obviously spend a bunch of time talking about the product or the service and, you know, what makes it special, what competitors are close to you in terms of that product or service delivery, but you really get to know the brand. And then when you, so you've got these three sort of insights and you kind of put them together and what you find Those three is, insights are what? From the internal, the, from the customer? Well, and the, the audience, your customers, your audience, competitive situation, and the brand itself, which includes kind of the internal stuff of the brand. You know, when you look at those, kind of the intersection, it's not literally that, but kind of, it, it kind of is. The intersection of those three things ought to give you some hints at where the positioning ought to be. And then once you get there, to me, there's kind of three criteria you have to meet. And you have to meet all three of them. You know, is this positioning relevant to your audiences? Is this positioning ownable by the brand? Can you actually deliver on what you're promising? And then lastly, does it differentiate you from the competition? Because if you can come up with a positioning that makes you relevant, ownable, and differentiating, you're off to a pretty good start because you're going to give people something that means something. That's interesting. So the first one is relevant, and that's meaning is the customer even care about that? And I read something, I think Seth Godin talked about this not so long ago in an article, and he said, sometimes as marketers, we find ourselves slicing and dicing so much to find something that makes us a little different, special. And they'll say Mm -hmm. something like, well, our software is 1% less expensive and 3% more more effective. And that's where he goes, not relevant, right? I don't care. I'm right. not going to make cares? a decision based on that, right? Yeah. And then right, the next exactly. one you said was what, ownable? Ownable. And that's like, you know, can so, you deliver on it? I mean, you can kind of take the converse of these three things, right? If it's not relevant, people don't care. If it's something you can't own, then you'll get trial, but you won't get repeat because some of you'll, you know, believe what you said, they'll buy the product or service and you'll disappoint them and they won't come back. So it's got to be ownable to you, your I brand. and one of the, that's sometimes when I hear people in transportation logistics, you know, where people are very sensitive about price we sell to the shippers, but it's very hard to kind of own. Yeah, I've got the cheapest price all the time because, yeah, first off, it's hard to reinvest. I mean, the margins are thin and the idea that you can keep delivering by being consistently cheaper, you have to have the operational shops that really would deliver that. Or you just say, we've agreed to make zero margins or low margins. That doesn't yeah, I was going to say the, yeah, the real danger is you drive down your margin, and that's just—I mean, that's that's not a good end game. 
So relevant, ownable. What was the third one you mentioned? Differentiating. Differentiating, you know, obviously means you're different than the competition. And it kind of get, you know, not being differentiated kind of ultimately drives you into that price competition because now if you're the same yeah. as some of your competition, they'll just be looking for price. Right, right. That's the problem. That's the problem. And, you know, it's interesting. I think we always heard eggs was the ultimate commodity. And now if you walk in and look at eggs at the grocery store, there's cage-free, there's this, that, the other thing. Yeah. They, they are not easy to compare apples to apples, which is deliberate. So they figured that out. And you know what I'm yeah. Chip? I've said this on my other podcast in the past. For people your, your age and my age, we remember pre-cell phone. In the olden days, <laughs> boys and girls, phones were the most boring thing in the world. No yeah. one cared. They were not differentiated. No one cared. And then flash forward to today where somebody says, I'm willing to sleep in the street so I can have a new iPhone. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so Apple took something that was the most boring, basic business on earth, could not be more, could not be less differentiated. And they had people sleeping in the streets. <laughs> and, yeah. and Starbucks did the same thing. Nobody in the coffee business in the 80s thought you could charge extra for coffee because it's just coffee. Coffee is coffee yeah. is coffee. Until Starbucks shows up and says, we'd like to charge you a, charge you five bucks for that <laughs> nice cup of coffee with some foam yeah. on top. One of my favorite stories along the same lines was thinking of commodities like milk. Milk is probably one of them. And just like you mentioned, there's like, you know, like phones have now become the big thing, but milk with, you know, oat milk and all my God, somebody has figured that out too. But we'll go before we get to all those kind of, you know, fancy new milks for a long time, they just straight up, you know, dairy milk product saw you know, declining sales. And so, and then it was, it's been a while, but somebody noticed that there was this sudden, very noticeable uptick in milk sales and they couldn't figure out what had happened because it was, you know, milk's milk, right? And when they dug into it, where they saw the uptick in milk sales corresponded to when McDonald's decided to start packaging the milk in their kids' Happy Meals in containers that look like the characters rather than the waxed paper cartons. And of course, now right. they're much more exciting to kids and kids were now wanting the milk in their Happy Meals. And it actually turned the volume of the milk category around. Right. So I guess my point and your point is, if you think a little bit creative, if Apple can make computers sexy and trendy right. and phone something you're worth willing to sleep in the street for, and Starbucks can get that premium price for a coffee where you could never get premium price for coffee. We can do it in our business too. And I think it's just yeah, about I mean, you know being creative and really understanding the customer and their needs. That's exactly, I was going to say, it really dig into the customer needs. Don't let them off the hook when you ask them what they want because they'll just tell you what they're getting right now. You need to understand where their pain points are and what could make their life better. How can you make them happier? In some cases, you see certain businesses, and I think Apple is one of those businesses where they the customers never ask for the stuff they got. And in automotive, right. which I'm from, nobody ever said to Ford, we want the Mustang. But they kind of just, they saw a trend. They saw a whole bunch of young people with disposable income in the 60s. And they said, hey, we're going to make a car specifically for kids, young people. Never happened. Yeah. Yeah. And then 20 years later, Chrysler did it with the minivan. They knew kind of from looking at the market that, you know what, we think they're going to want this minivan. No one asked for it. I mean, right. but these guys knew the customer well enough to say, I think I see this coming. We see a whole bunch of parents who are lugging kids around, lugging groceries around. They got two dogs and six kids. They need a big tractor to haul them around in. And they 
created the minivan. Yeah, I think what you're talking about here is if, you know, in this day and age with data available to everybody, I mean, a particular company has access to some data, you can be sure your competitors have the access to the same data. And so if you're basing all your decisions just on the data, you're probably only, your ceiling on that approach is parity with your competition because they're looking at the same data. Something someone told me a long time ago that I remember that is exactly what you were talking about with you know, the Mustang and the minivan is, and they remember this quote to this day, I wish I knew who said it. He said, you have to make great leaps of faith, but from a firm foundation. So you've got to do your due diligence right. with all the data, but then it's going, you know, taking that leap across the unknown to build a Mustang or a minivan. Yep. Yep. So that first step in the building a brand, I know we went a lot of different directions here, but just give us a few bullet points on that discovery phase. What is that? It's basically understand your audience, understand your brand, understand your customer. And then the next step is to take those, you know, those three components and figure out how do they come together to create a relevant, ownable and differentiating position. And once you have that, what do you do? Yeah, then you start to create those documents that inform not only the external articulation, the advertising, the marketing, the sales for materials, the CRM, but it also starts to inform how you operate internally because, you know, just because you could figure out what the machine should be turning out, you got to make sure the people inside the machine know why they're doing it because, you know, if they don't, they're not, they don't have a mission, right? It's good to have all the people that touch the brand understanding what the mission is. It's the back to that Michael Eisner quote, you know, brand lives or dies based on a thousand small gestures. So you got to, you know, the strongest brands have it right, you know, inside and outside. So, you know, after you get that positioning figured out, you start creating documents like the value proposition, you know, messaging hierarchies, things like that that inform how the brand gets talked about and, and represented, you know, internally and externally. What do you mean by internally? Why is that important? It's a little that you are what you eat kind of thing. One, you want people to really understand the mission. It's employees, right, and stakeholders should understand the mission because then everything they do, they understand why they're coming to work every day. When they're asked to make decisions, they're more likely to make decisions and support the brand position to the extent that, you know, a brand position, consistency is so important for a brand. And, and to the extent that, you know, inconsistency is possible, you run the risk of diluting the brand. Great brands are pure throughout, you know, everything you run into with a great brand, everything you aligns. see the brand. <laughs> yep. And, and that's not just the marketing stuff. It means when you talk to the employees, there's the famous story from back in the days of Nike, where, you know, when it was a smaller company, but still understood the power of the Nike brand, people were getting tattoos of Nike spelled backwards on, you know, Eakin was this sort of like silent society. It was, a, you know, when you had that tattoo, it meant you, you got it. Right. Right. There's well, that's one of my favorite, I, I, just real quick right. story. That is one of my, you know, before Best Buy bought out Geek Squad, it was this kid at the University of Minnesota who was good at fixing computers and rode his bike around fixing computers and one thing led to another. You know, he, and he, he was a made, geek. Um, and he was a geek. So, but the, when the company was small, they, you know, they were really invested in making sure that the geek part of geek squad you know, rang true because they figured that's what people were looking for from computer repair. So they started wearing these uniforms, you know, that look like, you know, a special agent from the 1950s with the skinny ties and, you know, short sleeve right. white cotton buttoned on shirts. And as a story, yeah, they goes, leaned into it. You know, totally. The guy who started it tells a story about how 
he came into the office one day and saw a bunch of employees kind of hanging around one of the new guys and he thought they were harassing him and he went over to kind of you know tell him to back off or whatever and what he realized was happening that he didn't even know about was that they the employees had decided that when you became a member of the geek squad you were required to go get your driver's license picture retaken but you had to do it in the you know the uniform the you know the skin tie and, <laughs> and so this new employee had just got Right. He had just gotten his license back and they were all looking at it. They were all proud that, you know, and so it was, you know, it wasn't harassment at all, but it was this sign of how, Initiation. how in, yeah, and how internalized they had taken the brand positioning. And he was obviously thrilled. Yeah. Chip, I can tell you in transportation logistics, you're starting to see some companies really kind of pick specializations and kind of brand themselves that way. Guys over at Forager do a ton of cross-border, and I don't think they move much freight anywhere else. So they move a ton of stuff mm-hmm. back and forth to Mexico. And I think, you know, I had Mr. Silver on here, and he talked about it, and it was very interesting because he saw an opportunity said, this is what we're going to focus on. You can't focus on everything. You can't be everything right. to everyone. And then it allows him to really focus his energies in one place, his investments in one place, and everybody in the operation knows yeah, we'll occasionally do some other moves, but our moves are for companies that do a lot of shipping back and forth to Mexico. And you're starting to see more and more companies kind of embrace that. Yeah, and it just makes life, I mean, it's hard to say, well, you know, to kind of specialize and say, we're going to be only interested in this kind of business. But think about, you know, how energized and focused people can become. Like the sales team now knows exactly who they should be selling to because you've told them, these are the companies that think this is valuable and you tell them exactly what the you know the touch points the, you know, the pain points that you're addressing and how to talk about those things it just becomes a much more you know true there's a story that almost tells itself when you've got a really good positioning that fits with your company right so chip i'm going to summarize a little bit just because we talked offline and i wrote notes down because i needed to <laughs> but mm-hmm. you, you talked about this first step is this discovery phase and mm-hmm. from that discovery phase, we're going to come up with something, a brand, something that's going to be relevant, ownable, and what was the last thing? Differentiating. Are you different than your competition? Right. And your hope is that from that discovery phase, you end up with a vision of kind of what you want to be when you grow up. You can't be everything right, exactly. there. We're going to pick an area. We're going to, and that doesn't mean you turn other business away, not initially anyway. You're going to focus your energies all in that one space and do a really good job on it. And yep. it's so at that point, you've already got a brand. People already have things they're saying about. It. And it, but you used the term after that the next phase, you said, hammer it home, pick that niche, fully invest in it, know everything your ideal customer wants. And if you say, you know, we're going to move stuff back and forth to Mexico, I'm going to have tons of Spanish speaking people like Forger does. And you're going to do a real good job on that. And yeah. pick that niche and do a wonderful job. And then you've mentioned also you got to get the internal team all aligned to it, mm-hmm. all on board. Because if they don't believe it or if they kind of say, nobody told us that we're just doing Mexico shipments, then they're going to do it. They're not going to be on board. And I think they're not going to feel part of the team either. <laughs> right. And if you've done all the due diligence to come up with this you know, positioning, it should be a fairly easy conversation to have. It's not just something you decide to do on a whim, which is probably really hard to sell to people. Say, hey, we're going to change the way we go to market because I feel like it, you know, that doesn't engender a lot of you know motivation. But if you can say, look, we talked to you guys, we've analyzed our competition, we've looked at the marketplace, and this is what we see. 
people get behind that. They'll understand why you're doing that. And, and again, that's the first step to making this brand positioning pure throughout the uh, organization. Right. And kind of last but not least, the thing you said, and again, I, being a non-brand strategist, I thought, you know, I was talking sales and marketing, messaging and websites and social media, business cards and all that. That's obviously very important. That's how you communicate. That's kind of the last thing on your list. That's next to the logo. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, it's hard to say. It's hard to say what should the website be doing? What should our CRM messaging be before you know where you're trying to go? The, you know, the brand positioning sort of is that, you know, the end destination, your vision. And so knowing that is almost, you know, critical to getting all the other stuff put together. Excellent. Excellent. So Chip, this is a great topic. I appreciate taking the time. Why don't yeah, you fun. give us some final words on this bad boy and put a bow on it? <laughs> I, I'll tell you, I, over the years, the one thing that I have really, really learned is for whatever reason, people have a hard time appreciating how valuable their audiences and their customers' opinions are. I would encourage the first thing I do in, for any engagement is find a way to talk to the customers. And just because you can learn a lot about a brand that way, but you can learn a lot about what customers really want and need. And it's not easy to do. You really got to dig in and get under the surface. But boy, knowing as much as possible about the people that, you know, buy and recommend products and services in your category and in your brand is so important. And don't forget to videotape it too, because I'll tell you, I don't know how many times we've shown some of these interviews to clients and they're just blown away because, you know, they don't spend the time to talk to their customers. And it really is eye opening when you do. Yeah. Chip, I think one of the things I've said this about the podcast with Tom Ongeteller, a lot of times we're talking to shippers who are very hairy. It's a, we're all busy. We're so hectic mm -hmm. in this world. And they say things that are very superficial. So I think yeah. having people like yourself who are from outside the organization and say, hey, can I get two hours on your calendar on Monday morning so we can go over this? That's different than me call, and we're also distant from all of our customers and logistics. Almost never do you have your customers down the street. So the conversation sometimes can get a little superficial. And I sometimes think they don't know why they buy. I don't know why I buy half the stuff I buy. Yeah. And so if someone says, why did you buy this brand of milk? I don't know. <laughs> I just did. Yeah. So I think it's hard to have those conversations that you're recommending we have. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. The other thing that comes into play too is there's a lot of assumptions made. If, you know, if as a third party person coming in, I have no problem being stupid and saying, boy, I don't know anything about this. You know, talk to me like I was an alien that just landed on the planet. Then they have to right. give you the kind of the one on one. They don't assume anything. There's no, you know, there tends to be no jargon. It's easier to, like I said, play stupid and get under the surface than it would be for someone who is presumed. I do that very well. <laughs> I've seen you do it. Sometimes it seems as if I'm not even playing. <laughs> <laughs> You're so good at it. <laughs> yeah. So this has been great. It's such an important topic. And again, I know for the first time in our many years as friends and talking about brands and ships where I recommended like 10 books I've read. I've probably read three or four of them. But now like transportation logistics companies are getting brands. And I, I'm hearing from Chip Moore and Moore saying, what is this? What is that? So it's here, guys. It might not be yeah. your company, but it could be your competition. So, Chip, tell us a little bit about what's going on over at Ludwig Plus. What do you guys do? We kind of specialize in building brands from the ground up. We kind of look like an advertising agency, but really we prefer to kind of 
look under the hood rather than just do the exterior work. Because what we often find is things we've talked about today that companies aren't as precisely positioned as they should be and they haven't taken the time to build the brand internally. So what Ludwig Plus does a lot of is create these fully formed brands. And sometimes it's fine tuning and sometimes it's an overhaul, but it's fun because both the folks at Ludwig Plus and our clients tend to learn lots of new things and that's always fun. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I will say there's some advantage to having outside people who are experts. We talk sometimes on this podcast about coaches. You know, the reason coaches are good is because they're coming at it with fresh eyes. It's their full Mm -hmm. job to, you know, figure out your problems. And, you know, we're transportation and logistics and warehousing guys. It's not that we all do understand our customers to some extent, but getting, as you said, under the hood is not always easy. We're we're busy and don't always have those expertise in our back pocket. Excellent. Thanks you so much, Chip. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been fun. I appreciate it. Yep. It was a good time. Yeah. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 